Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, we're winding down to the last three tapes in this series of podcasts. Those of you who have been with us here in the Psychedelic Salon for a while know that uh, I've been podcasting a series of conversations between Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake that were held at the uh, Esalen Institute in the fall of 1989 and 1990. And the cassette recordings of these discussions, uh, which the participants called a trialogue, were loaned to me by Ralph Abraham a few months ago, and I've been trying to get at least one tape out each week since then. Now, after we listen to today's trilogue, I'll come back and uh, let you know where we are in the series, and I'll give you a rough idea of what the next month or so of programs will include. But first, let's get on with today's trilogue, in which our intrepid trialoguers approach the topic of the resacularization of the world. I don't know if I have shared with you the story of my religious training and upbringing. Maybe that will be appropriate for this discussion, as I've heard a little bit about yours. My parents, of course, were derived of some Jewish background, but after some remove of generations, particularly my father. My mother had been a regular uh, temple visitor in her town until she married my father. And uh, since his parents had relocated from New York to the backwoods of Vermont in their youth, they had no connection with any Jewish tradition. So my father was brought up in somewhat of a vacuum. Nevertheless, he, I think he developed an aversion to organized religion of any sort, and particularly Jewish. I thought he might have forbade the uh, mention or presence of any Jewish religious stuff in the house, but my mother denies this. Anyway, there wasn't any. And uh, in the meanwhile, he developed a kind of religion of his own, which was centered on the family and on a concept of love, which was fairly abstract. So he used to say that love was everything. Occasionally, some circumstance would cause me to be in a church while a service was going on, and then I would look around at the other people with heads bowed when told to bow their heads, thinking, I am the only one who's not casting my eyes down. I am the only one that doesn't believe this stuff. So I, I don't know if there's a name for this uh, re- kind of religious upbringing, I guess, a total vacuum. Explicitly, my father's idea was, it's better to start when you're an adult, and then you can acquire whatever <laughs> religious training you want, <laughs> sort of considering all with an open mind. Now, I never considered all with an open mind and decided whether to have one or none. I just didn't bother to think about it. And then, <laughs> and then I studied you know, psychoanalysis and music and physics and eventually mathematics that has no relationship to any religious tradition. So eventually the, um, the 60s happened, and probably my first uh, experience that I would now identify as a real religious ex- experience was the experience uh, of LSD and whatever intrinsic meaning it carried to me without too much suggestion from the set, the setting, the popular books, and so on. And... Uh, I immediately thought, as many people did in those days, but not so many today, I think, that this was a religious experience in the true sense of religion, as was probably lost from organized religion, which I knew on the basis of no knowledge or anything, just a guess. Because, of course, I knew people. In fact, practically everybody I did know went to some kind of church, or at least had been brought up with one and formally rejected it. And through them, I I got the idea that there was no evidence of of any sacred knowledge outstanding in any of these churches. Through, eventually, in the study of uh, art, architecture, music, and so on, I could see in the recent past that there had been a sacred knowledge in the churches of Europe that was embodied in the architecture, the music, and so on. 
it occurred to me that there might be what I had recently discovered in the form of religion had um, become extinct only in the recent past in the Western world. Well, these were just idle thoughts, as in these days, in the 60s, we were very preoccupied with politics. Then, when I got to India, I found that this uh, lapse, uh, the extinction of the sacred in organized religion was sort of reduced to zero there, that at least in the, with the jungle babas and so on, you had a live tradition of identification with uh, sacred, what I recognized as sacred at that time, and an easy sharing of the idea of it with the students, the chelas, and, and so on. And then when I returned from India to California about the time I met you, Terence, I, I began to think that there might be some way um, to, re to revitalize the Western tradition. Of course, other people were speaking about this also, particularly those concerned with uh, Western yoga, the remnants of the adepts of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so on. And of course, we had our great influence from the Theosophists and the studies of alchemy and, and so on. Um, but there was still at this time in 1972, a tremendous separation between uh, political activity, which we were still involved with, particularly around um, issues of chemical pollution and things like that, on the one hand, and the, the loss of the sacred in religion on the other hand. I mean, it was more like, it's a shame this pretty thing is gone. Then in the course of the uh, of time, these uh, these came together, and uh, in the suggestion, which now I see many people have made in their books about it, that what's gone wrong in the world now is actually, I mean, a, a root cause is the loss of the the connection to the sacred uh, within and without organized religion. Uh, after this connection is made, then political activity has to address this. I mean, if people have different theories of evil, I would call them, um, whether the loss of the partnership society in 1400 BC or the loss of uh, the sacred in church ritual after the scientific revolution or uh, the population explosion and the advance of modern medicine in, in reducing infantile mor infant mortality and and so on, the different theories of evil, because of um, the strength of the direct experience I had with the sacred, I f this became and remains my favorite theory of evil. So if I was going to direct myself to some activity to not exactly save the world, but at least to, to hope in that direction, then I would uh, try to create for some larger portion of humanity the the lost thread of connection to the sacred. So this, this is the program that we have all thought about under the name, the resacralization of the, of the world. So um, as far as I know, there are just a few proposals for any kind of direct action that go in this uh, direction. One is the uh, resumption of rituals not native to us but native to other people that still exist in some kind of live form such as the shamanism of uh, native tribes and um, another idea is the revitalization of existing re religion by finding means to re-attract people to the wonderful churches of the western world having um, not only the, the shape, the architectural shape, most appropriate for communication with this sacred thread, um, but also the tradition, the morphic field, the runnel, the creode of, of this connection, by figuring out through some sort of archaeology of knowledge the missing link. When was it that this went out? For what reason was it that uh, the organ replaced singing in the church, or, or what was it? And whatever it was to do experiments on bringing it back. And... Uh, Another uh, 
idea is to, to remain within the context of Western society, but outside the organized churches, and replace uh, churches with an equivalent institution, perhaps based in the sacred arts, music, architecture, painting, and so on. And another one that um, we have all given great attention to, and I'm beginning to think too much attention, is the revitalization of science, um, uh, acknowledging that science has replaced the traditional Christian mythology with its own substitute mythology, and the weaknesses of this mythology are at the root of evil. So those are four things I put on my list as top candidates already discussed. And you know, in this connection, we probably should keep in mind the uh, partnership society because there's a connection. I mean, it's it's suggested, I think, uh, in these works like Rian Eisler's on the partnership society, that the disintegration, the devitalization, uh, the decline of the of the church, of organized religion, of the significance of organized religion, is associated with the patriarchal transformation of society and the embodiment of the patriarchal values within the organized church in the papal hierarchy of the Roman church and so on had um, contributed to the roots of its decline. So um, my favorite idea at the moment from this list has to do with rituals, these New Year's rituals and so on. I would take the Eleusinian mysteries as a model. And uh, I, I don't think that everybody should uh, take psychedelics, for example, or have a shamanistic experience in the Amazon jungle in order to reawaken, uh, to rebuild their connection to the divine. But it could be that uh, the churches and their rituals and so on could be reinvigorated by having a certain uh, class of, of priesthood uh, as Jesuits and so on, that maybe a new class that specialized in maintaining this connection with uh, the purity of this connection being devoid of, of any uh, intrinsic cultural overlay. And that that could be one component among many the um, the weaknesses of the scientific myth mythology could be somehow fixed by incorporating a uh, scientific worldview into uh, the church view and, and so on. So some sort of syncretism between the, uh, the Christian tradition, the Judeo-Christian model, including its patriarchal weakness for the moment, trying to repair that in the ways that people are doing in the new church movement. And uh, in the inclusion of the, the sacrament, at least for a holy elite, the, uh, the resacralization of music, I think, is very important. If I had to point to a single factor that I thought was destroying society faster than other, it would be evil music. It's my personal bias. Well, that's my view for a start on the resacralization of society. In short, I'm looking for something beyond the, uh, the understanding of the virtues of the past that could be the basis of some kind of program in the present, even if it wasn't something that we could do, but something that we could foresee that might, might happen that would create a successful society here. Hmm. Very interesting, Ralph. Very interesting. Why don't you just say a tiny bit more about what constitutes evil music? Well, since uh, <clears throat> Orpheus, Pythagoras, and so on, there has been um, a permanent tradition of sacred music. And we have record sacred music is still played various places, and we have uh, recordings of Gregorian chants and Gurdjieff playing and, and so on. But uh, the, the best analysis of the relationship between style and music and style in society that I've come across is Cyril Scott. Cyril Scott is somebody that Janice Rosé pointed out to me. This was a, a moderately famous composer and pianist in England. And uh, his pieces aren't well known, but he's in a process of rediscovery now. And some people have said, who are you know, serious musical scholars, that he will one day rank with Beethoven. 
that might be an overvaluation. Anyway, he he's an interesting composer. I've heard his music played. And he wrote a book called, I forget, The Harmony of the Spheres or something, in which he analyzed the particular contribution and the evolution of Western society of the various composers, uh, for example, Debussy and Buchtude and Bach and, and so on. For, I, I don't remember the details. He said, for example, that the, uh, I think the woman's movement when it began in England was enabled by a handle, that there's something about handle which is supportive for political revolution and not for other things. And uh, Beethoven um, developed the uh, romantic and the emotional in German culture. So this is spelled out in a book. Now, if, if Cyril Scott were alive today and watched MTV, I'm sure that he would, would say that this uh, worldview embodied in this music was leading rather than following the decline of the biosphere. And he would see a causal connection. And I think we can take that as a hypothesis that maybe can't be proved. I, I have no faith in experiments that have been done with music played to plants and so on, although it might be worth a serious review of that literature at some point. I see what you say. I think that this music is very harmful to the ears. It's much too loud if you go to a concert. It's harmful, it's physically harmful, it's mentally, it's emotionally harmful, and uh, people flock to this, and I think it takes a long time of listening before you get really tired of it. And that has something to do uh, with the starvation of the soul for, for beauty, the disconnection. Uh, this is the aesthetical side of the, the disconnection of the human species from some sort of divine guidance, which might go under the name of, of harmony, or the world soul, or whatever. If you're not in resonance with this world soul, then you can't have a future. So the aesthetics of the world soul. Well, a lot of what you're saying is, uh, you're talking about an archaic revival, these various things that you listed, the resumption of ritual, the revitalization of existing religion. I agree completely with all of this. Uh, the only thing that I would add, and I know you agree, is uh, feminism comes in here somewhere in the form of the revitalization of partnership. I, I'm not entirely clear. Sometimes you seem to be talking about a revitalization of the forms of the 15th and 16th century and sometimes much further back like all this business about organs and churches, that's relatively recent stuff. Well, there's been loss has been going on for 10,000 years. For a long, long time. And in different ages past, it's something that it couldn't be revived in its original form. Uh -huh. We may have to use video and film technology. But so you're saying so incremental recovery of the Gylanic perspective. Uh, well, the value of getting the uh, true partnership into the church would mean that we then didn't have to replace the church just because it had been on the wrong track for 5,000 years. True. It has to be... True. Uh, maybe it's possible to correct without rebuilding the Gothic cathedrals. But isn't this a little like trying to reform the Soviet Union and keeping the Communist Party around? I think the momentum of these institutions makes them hard to reform. Well, the organization that collects the money and buys the land and so on might be totally replaced. But I think the, the architecture is good, as I think that the current music is evil. Oh, and, I see uh, what you're saying. Um, e even though an analyst more expert than myself could somehow, could maybe see dominator forms are built into the actual architecture um, of many of the cathedrals, I still think it's possible to revive them, that their form would take new meaning because of the life going on inside. If we have to start from scratch, figuring out architecture for a partnership society, then that's going to be very difficult. And I don't know if we'll have time to succeed. Well, I think beginning with a, a revival of Gothic cathedral building in the high matriological style of Chartres sounds just fine. I certainly think that the Romanesque style is a dominator style and a ponderous and uncomfortable uh, way to do it.
but I love the Gothic and Gothic revival. I mean, this is a celebration of vegetation and lightness and air and... Well, my own sentiments, exactly. I mean, I, I'm very interested to hear this uh, proposal of Rouse, because it's something that I've formulated starting from a different point of view, and try to follow. Because I, as a practicing member of the Church of England, um, I obviously think that the, uh, there's a value in the traditional continuity of the institution. I also believe that the way forward is since it's obvious that uh, organized religion is at one of its lowest ebbs ever. This, in a sense, creates um, uh, an extraordinary openness and possibility for change. And I think that one of the ways in which um, modern Christianity could reconnect with the same sort of sources of inspiration that gave rise to the Gothic cathedrals is partly through the Gothic cathedrals themselves, which, at least in England and throughout the whole of Europe, are all still there. I mean, practically all of them are still functioning, and they still have sacred chants going on in them every day, prayers offered up on a regular cycle, just as great temples should have. They're continuously active, sacral places that have been sacral for centuries and lead us to a position that would at least connect us with the kind of ancestral um, psyche um, because they're still functioning, they, they put us into that particular model of the cosmos that they have, the cathedrals like temples, the models of the cosmos, and they have all the things that interest us in them, in a way. I mean, there's the vegetation principle. There are gargoyles and protector spirits. There are green men, these mysterious vegetation gods that burst out everywhere in this mysterious way. The, they're usually dedicated, the greatest ones are dedicated to Our Lady, who was seen in various forms, particularly the form of Our Lady of Wisdom and, and Sophia in the Middle Ages. And um, they have in their windows the geometrical designs, they have threefold mandalas, fourfold mandalas, fivefold mandalas, and then there are rose windows with these extremely complex psychedelic mandala things with all these stained glass windows. They, they have all these qualities, so they're one way, I think, of reconnecting us with the sacred places of Europe, and they connect us to the, the places and also to the traditional cycle of festivals. So I think that's one important route. I think another important route is through um, the practice of festivals in general, you know, the sacralization of time, um, which some Jewish people are doing through revitalizing the tradition of the Sabbath, you know, and the Friday evening lighting the candles with the invocation of the Sabbath bride or the Shekinah, these, the feminine principles involved in, in the home and in space and time and in the world and in embodied existence. And anyway, the sacralization of time is another way that can reconnect us with these traditions. And I think the most important aspect of this process, really, because I agree with Terence about the archaic revival, is to find behind the existing forms and existing festivals the, the uh, pre-Christian roots, which in all cases are the ones that feed the particular timing of the festivals and the particular locations of the sacred places, and which ground the new religion in the old, and connect it through the present tradition as it still goes on. There's a continuous living strand in the tradition that goes right back to the pre-Christian uh, shamanic societies of Europe. So I think that this is a connection that can still work. It works for me. I find it actually works, this connection. I find it does um, make me feel that I do have an affinity with the cathedrals and the, late, and the, middle, the high Middle Ages. And, um, so, and also with the particular places. But then obviously the whole thing has to be tied in with if this, is, this continued sacralization of, sa of space and time involves recognizing the importance of sacred places everywhere of every kind, including the hills and the high places and the sacred groves and the national parks and so on. So it would involve a much more animistic version of Christianity or Judaism. And it would involve the process that I'm... Um, I've come to think of as the greening of God, this new 
greening of God process that's going on. It's theologians who've revived the whole tradition of Hildegard von Bingen and, and the greening process, and this whole hidden strand of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which may never have been a majority strand, but even as a minority strand can be used to authenticate, feed, and give life to a, a burgeoning of that aspect of the thing now, now when that's what's needed. Yes, well, it seems, Ralph, you're sort of advocating this. I, I'm, I find well, it... Well, I'm asking, is it possible? I'm not sure. Well, I, what I was going to say was, you know, McLuhan said it was inevitable in the sense that he had this notion that he called electronic feudalism, and he felt that the consequence of the shift from a literate phonetic alphabet cultures, which existed for us as recently as the 1940s, uh, that the replacing of it with electronic forms of media would have an effect on the ratio of the senses, and that the ratio, the new ratio created by electronic media, would be most similar to the ratio of the senses that existed in medieval Europe before the invention of printing. He based this on the idea that before the linear uniformity of print, you had to actually look at manuscript because every manuscript was different because it reflected the hand of its author and that after print was invented people no longer looked they read and this was a very different function where you don't actually study each e and l you uh, you generalize uh, with television and electronic media you're again returned to the situation where you must look you must assemble out of a out of a gestalt an image you cannot read it and he felt that the consequences of this shift in the sense ratio would be global and immense, that it would cause the fragmentation and dissolution of the nation-state, which we certainly seem to be seeing in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and that uh, it would return people to uh, a, a kind of pietistic fundamentalism, homebound because electronic media brings information to you and that all of these factors would conspire to create a, an, an era in which the gothic model would be very strongly expressed. I, from my own point of view with the theory of the time wave, see this uh, coming in the mid-90s and expect it to be very strong and it will be it will have many aspects in the same way that the Middle Ages are certainly an ambiguous period of time. I mean, the glory of the Gothic cathedrals is one side of it, but uh, it was a time of wandering flagellance, pestilence, bigotry, suppression of women, hatred of outsiders, insularity, provincialism, barbarism, so forth and so on. But I think we're in an excellent position from McLuhan's point of view and from my own reasoning from entirely different premises to experience something very much like what you're advocating. And I, for one, look forward to it. Well, I think the conditions under which this transformation could somehow take place would um, require, first of all, the decentralization, that one of the most patriarchal aspects of the church is the monolithic, centralized government of it. And the, just as there's the local movements, uh, the little national movements for the resumption of languages such as Welsh and so on, and the return of the Slavic, the Baltic states to local control and so on, I think also the churches would have to be returned to local languages in order that the festivals could relate to the local hills, wells and trees and so on. And then on this local basis, the uh, partnership of men and women emerging as a parallel movement within the society would, um, in, in the context of this emerging partnership, the locally controlled churches would then be transfigured so that their festivals had a new meaning and took place on the locally appropriate days and 
and so on. I mean, that's just one level that um, people would have to value their local church. Maybe they would have dances in it and actually have their marriages in it and, and, and so on. And uh, a lot of rituals would have to be rewritten. And then there would have to be scholarship as to the uh, proper relationship of the ritual in the place. And then there would have to be journals where the scholarship was published or something. And then there would have to be an educational system, something like Sunday school, where this uh, new stuff or old stuff wa was taught. And uh, it could be that the society is much too rigid for any of these necessary conditions to to be created. What you just described sounded uh, much, more, much more like a model of the Anglican Church than the Roman Catholic. Uh, I mean, the Anglican Church has autonomous, each country has its own. The Church of England is the English Church, there's the Church in Wales, there's the Church of Ireland, there's the Episcopalian Church of the US, the Episcopalian Church of Canada, and then in all these African countries they have their own. There with black bishops, and, and in each case, each church is autonomous. And some have decided to ordain women and have done so, like the Episcopalian Church in the United States and Canada and in New Zealand. Some have not decided to do so yet, like in England. And so there's a kind of pluralism of each finds its own way. Now, it's not the... Um, the thing is, it's quite a flexible model. Anglicanism doesn't have the same problems with the Pope and the, the strong tradition of, uh, of, of authority. It's much more autonomous church and in, in its organization each bishop has a high degree of autonomy and each parish priest does too so it's in his own parish so it's it's that's one model and it's not the only one it's not a perfect one but it's one but you've also said that religion organized religion is at its lowest ebb and i think you told me that the attendance in churches and anglican churches in england is at, at its lowest ebb it's now it running at slightly under 2% of the population. 2%. 2%. So the, somehow the, um, the flexibility of this system, which does indeed sound ideal for the purpose I'm describing in this fantasy, is actually of no use, uh, ha has no attraction to people. And uh, so what would be necessary in order to reverse this trend, to make it really of obvious benefit to go there? Well, you might first ask, is it worth doing? In America, attendance at church is much higher, and it convulses the body politic because unable to fulfill its sacral function, the church has become simply uh, a ruthless lobbying force for uh, fundamentalist social policy. So, you know... I think new institutions, in your first statement, you suggested replacement. that we... Replacement. I'm, I think we should build some new level to the ground and start over, at least in America. The Anglican Church, I think its great virtue, as I understand it, is that it's fairly harmless. But in America, religion mm. leads to hangings in my experience. Well, the Episcopal Church in America in particular, since Rupert said they're ordaining women, that seems to be a really major change. And maybe if this were the case in England, which I gather it is not yet, not yet but it then may it might be. be gradually increasing rather than decreasing attendance in church. Well, I think, you see, I think the, the, the reason why... I think the main reasons for attending, for people attending churches would have to do with an appreciation of collective participation in ritual, appreciation of the benefit of established forms and a continuous tradition, and appreciation of sacred place. Now, I think that these are three strong arguments for going to services. You're taking place in a traditional ritual at a sacred place which has a validity and a tradition behind it. Now, I think any replacement of the Church of England or of churches as institutions if it were to be effective, and if it were to sacralize political life, would have to be more than just a, a, a vast numbers of proliferating tiny cults. It'd have to be more than like more. It wouldn't really work if it were like the religious landscape of Southern California, you know, with its sort of divisive mm -hmm. cultism. There would have to be a certain validity to it where it could authenticate 
It would have the to power have a, a of the, valid mission. The power of the ruler and the power of the power of the political system and and validate the, the entire workings of the political the body politic. For that you need something like an established church. And you, one of the problems of the United States is it doesn't have one, and it can't have one for constitutional reasons. So there's very little way in which the, the, the political life in America could be sacralized, since by definition it's secular. Now, so there's a different problem here in America. But say in Britain, consider this possibility. There is, a, there is in fact already an established church which can fulfills many of the traditional sacralizing roles. It's the custodian of the great sacred places of England, the great cathedrals and many other, Glastonbury Abbey, all these places, are under the custody of the established church, which on the whole fulfills this role extremely well, maintains their sacrality and so on. Now, say that this is abolished, or simply allowed to wither and, and disappear, and say one wants to replace it with another institution which would be able to exert a widespread claim to validity through all classes of society. Um, how would one go about doing it? I mean, the, the one reason I don't think that's a feasible route to follow is that I think you'd simply have a proliferation of endless small cults or sects and that you'd be left with a secular authority which was and a whole secular official life which was thoroughly desacralized. Well, one answer might be you have to find uh, a religious mission of sufficient consequence to command that kind of loyalty. In mythology, you need a unifying principle and a tractor. This fellow that I mentioned, Dave Brower of the Sierra Club, he actually said, you know, to save the earth, we need a, an outbreak of religious mania that would dwarf Islam. This is an idea which can send millions on the move. This is the new idea. It counts above everything and it will sweep across national borders and topple dynasties and melt away empires. And he, this is what got him tossed out of the Sierra Club. I mean, he called for a jihad to save the earth. And I think, you know, this kind of thing uh, is worth considering. The other thing I wanted to say is uh, I'm, the big, I, I'm a very big fan of the archaic revival, but as we talk about a new feudalism and look around the earth, we might ask ourselves, where is it that an archaic revival is actually underway and how is it going and the obvious example is uh, Iran where you know people took archaic revival seriously took old religious forms seriously the importance of resuming old rituals the importance of returning to tried and true ways and it's, I don't think, the kind of, not what we had in mind. Uh, well, they returned to a time when the sacred thread was already broken. You mean they, the 14th century or yes, something the, like that? Uh, I mean, the, the, the essence here is the actual connection to the sacred. And um, I think um, now we can't have an archaic revival by going backwards, exactly. We, we have to do our archaeology of knowledge to the point where we understand what the essence of it was, and to revive that would mean to bring it into modern forms. It would have to acknowledge, for example, that the total population of the planet is larger now than them. That means that recycling is mandatory. That means that uh, green consciousness, Gaia, hypothesis consciousness, ha would have to actually play a leading role in the actual rituals performed on the various days and so on. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, the mandate, I think, to create a, a new mythology that could organize different styles of churches on a path of convergent evolution would be one that was intrinsically attractive because it actually offered a reversal of the present trend that was somehow obvious to people. What about resacralization through religion as a slogan? I mean, it would come to many people as being a new idea. Well, the churches would have to be taken over. I mean, where you have still a uh, church government, a world a, a government that's excommunicating uh, preachers for acknowledging the equality of women or something, is just uh, too far removed from 
the current state of what the average person in our society knows to be well, attractive. I think the thing is that religious reform has to come through the, a movement actually getting going and being practiced and through example. And, <clears throat> you know, it could spread... Either one could have the growth of a new religion, like, say, an ayahuasca church or something like that, spreading spontaneously an entirely new thing. But sooner or later, I think, to gain any authority, it would have to undergo a kind of syncretism with the existing structures of religion. And it could be reinvigorated in that way. That's one way it could happen. Um, so a well, localization or control of the church would aid this process? It would aid the process, yes. Um, but... I, I, I mean, the only other way it could happen, as far as I could see, would be through uh, neo-pagan religious movements starting up in various ways. Um, they'd then have to go back further than the sacred Christian sites. They'd have to connect with Aboriginal Well, that sites. would be this jihad to save the earth, an outbreak of paganism. The but the, tri the thing is that paganism emerging in a post-Christian context would be so heavily flavored with Christianity that um, one could say that it was a kind of neo-Christian paganism. Well, then shamanism, the yet further back Well, jihads are not present in shamanism in the same way, I shouldn't think. The thing is that jihad is a particular model with Jewish roots perfected most by Islam, whose color, incidentally, is green. And if <laughs> one says that the uh, green movement should have a jihad, one has to remember that all the shrines of the saints and the color of the prophet is green. But jihads... It had come out of the whole sort of Judaic crusade, jihad, I mean, the Jewish holy wars and so on. But that's the particular field from which the concept comes. Mm -hmm. And a green a mass movement, you see, the most natural thing in a place like California would have decentralized movements of, of small cults, each with their following, a kind of entrepreneurial cult economy um, with no dominating giants and probably some secular antitrust laws to stop any of them getting too big. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, that wouldn't cause a mass movement. A mass movement of crusade or of jihad requires a much more unified movement. I think convergent evolution is a gentler way to go. I think um, that there's uh, a real gap, a conflict between these two different strategies of starting a new system based on the archaic revival or pagan revival on the one hand, and um, revolution of the churches, resacralization by religion on the other hand, and that has to do with a traditional church practice of uh, denying the validity of previous forms, uh, archaic pagan forms, and uh, particularly carried to the point <coughs> of revising history, I mean pulverizing goddess figurines and statues and, and so on what would be necessary besides uh, partnership of the genders, local control, a green politic, and so on within the ritual of the church would be an acknowledgement of the validity of the essential religiosity of the pagan forms, including the, the goddess, the worship of idols, and so on. And, the and that means that the Bible might have to be, here it is, abandoned. The Bible might have to be abandoned as a um, sacred document of the church. No, reinterpreted. Reinterpreted. Okay. That's a process that goes on continually, and the, the whole de development of, of the Christian religion, like any other, depends on a series of reinterpretations of traditional texts. So the, the, the reinterpretation that's going on right now is through the process theologians an attempt to develop the idea of an evolutionary God, of an evolutionary universe. That's one major strand of theological reinterpretation. And they have a very strong case because the God of the Old Testament is not a platonic, transcendent God outside history. He's a thoroughly hands-on interactive God who's, who's present in, within history, even arranging details like the passage through the Red Sea. You know, this is, this, is a, this is an interactive process. It's a, an ongoing providence that's uh, guiding the historical process. That's the Jewish conception of God, a kind of process God. They would say, and I think they're right, that this is in fact the true Judeo-Christian conception. So a process evolutionary model is one revolution going on in theology. Another is um, the recovery of the feminine and, and a, a, 
a recovery of the tradition of the Shekinah, the feminine presence of God, Sophia, the holy wisdom, is the feminine uh, wisdom principle, which is the, uh, it could fulfill many of the roles of the world soul, which is feminine. Um, and the, uh, a revival of that whole tradition, these revolutions are actually occurring in theology right now. I guess I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to parts of the conversation we just heard because every time they start talking about organized religion, (laughs) well, my blood began to boil just thinking about how those institutions have caused so much death and destruction that I miss what uh, people are saying next. So I did like Terrence's suggestion, by the way, though, of leveling all the churches to the ground. I'd like to think that he was talking about the institutions themselves and not the old buildings, because uh, I think that some of those old churches would make a great location for a rave. Just imagine a giant rave being held in all of the major churches of the world all at the same time. Now that, I think, would be a way to begin the resecularization of the world, don't you think? Another way, of course, is to continue doing what I know a lot of you are already doing, and that is uh, to create your own personal ceremonies and rituals for various days, like the solstice gatherings and full moon parties that seem to be sprouting up all over the place. I've been uh, quite fortunate to have participated in several of these new uh, homegrown festivals, and I always feel better about life afterwards. So uh, keep the flame going, you ritual pioneers. I'm really convinced that each time you conduct another uh, little ceremony like that, you deepen the creode of the new basin of attraction that our psychedelic community is working so hard to create. And uh, speaking of basins of attraction, there's a strong attractor starting to take shape in Costa Rica right now. And that is the uh, focus on the 2007 Mind States Conference that John Hanna has planned. You can find the details uh, about this at mindstates.org. But uh, here's a little detail that you probably won't find on the website. Just just before I started recording this podcast, I received uh, the following information in, in an email that John sent out. And he said... For a short period of time, I am offering a 10% discount off of the early bird price to those people who are willing to put down a 50% deposit, that's $585, on or before February 15th, and pay the remaining 50% on or before April 1st. This benefits you by allowing an additional $130 off of the conference cost, and also by allowing for the payment to be made in two installments, creating a less expense all at once. Now, by the way, the uh, the price, he doesn't say this in his email, but the uh, price of the conference includes not only the speakers, but also meals and uh, a room at the 2,000-acre eco-resort where the conferences will be held. And uh, while I, I can't vouch for the food there, what I can say about events like this is that the community meals are where uh, a lot of the magic takes place. It was uh, at a similar event where I first met the Shulgans when they came and sat down at a table where I was eating with a couple of new friends that I just met. There's just something about these conferences that uh, take place outside the states that make them stand out. Maybe it's because they're smaller and and thus more intimate, or maybe it's simply because once you get out of this oppressively heavy vibe here in the U.S., uh, life just seems a little lighter and more worth living. Anyway, if you're uh, interested in uh, attending a conference like this, well, I think this may be your only chance in 2007, so don't wait too long if you're being called. Where was I? Oh, yeah, John's email. After uh, mentioning the discount deal, he then went on to say that in the past, he's had a sponsor who helped him with the upfront costs, you know, like putting up the deposit for the hotel and things like that. But uh, this year, he's on his own, and so he's doing this limited-time discount offer to uh, help with his upfront expenses. That's uh, the reason for all this, I guess. So if you plan on attending, here's uh, a way to save some money and to help John out as well. You know, he's certainly done more than his share of the heavy lifting for many of us who never would have met had it not been for a Mind States conference. And uh, <laughs> speaking of John's conferences, I, I received an email from Iwell who said, Now don't get me wrong, 
I do like the trialogues, but I also like to hear more of the other speakers you've featured in the salon. So uh, how about breaking up the trialogues with some more of those mind states talks now and then? Well, I will. You've got a good point. But I also don't want to uh, break the flow of this first series of trialogues. So here's my plan for the next month or so. There are uh, ten tapes in the first series, and we'll finish tape eight in the next podcast. And then next week, I'll do tape nine, and then do the last tape the following week. Then we'll take a short break from the trialogues, and I'll get out a few more of this year's Palenque Norte talks from Burning Man. I know that I've got uh, Mark Pesci's talk and Amanda Fielding's talk uh, ready to go, and I think there are a couple more that I didn't get out yet as well. As for the trialogues, as you may remember from the first podcast in the trialogue series, these conversations were uh, held somewhat regularly from 1989 through 1998. And uh, thanks to Ralph Abraham, we've got copies of almost all of them. But uh, here's what I thought might be the most interesting way to listen to them. Are you ready for this? How about backwards? <laughs> no, not that kind. Although, uh, maybe it would be interesting to see if there's any hidden messages that we might hear by playing a McKenna rap backwards. But I didn't mean that kind of backwards. What I'm thinking about is that uh, instead of just listening to the rest of these programs uh, after this first series in chronological order, it might be more interesting to jump right to the last one, the one they did in 1998. And uh, since there were about 10 years between that trialogue and the ones we're hearing now, I'm wondering if their positions have changed or just where their conversation drifted to over the intervening years. Of course, uh, the danger here is that we might learn that they didn't have anything new to say after the passage of all that time. But my guess is that that won't be the case. Well, it's time to wrap up for today, but before I go, I should again mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcast. And if you still have questions, you can send them in an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. And just so that you know, the reason for the Creative Commons license is to make this material more available, not to restrict it. Uh, Just check out the creativecommons.org website and you'll see what I mean. Thanks again to the good folks from Chateau Hayuk for letting us use your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 